this is the Sean Yankee Show. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack. This episode of the Sean Yankee Show is being brought to you by the support of viewers like me. We realize the importance of independent media and truth in this time of mass deceit and propaganda. We have decided to fight for and support it to keep it alive. You can help us in this fight for truth. Contribute at patreon.com forward slash Sean Yankee. Thanks for coming to the show. It'll begin soon. everybody if you're just scrolling by get in here it is the sean yankee show welcome back i am sean and no matter when you're here or where you're at you are in the right place at the right time so settle in and get comfortable because you picked a fantastic night to come to our show tonight on the show is conspiracy theories and chill and we're in the middle of a series we're about halfway through breaking down one of the best truth documentaries ever made. Everything's a rich man's trick. So get in here, settle in, but take part. I love to hear from you guys. I love to hear your views. I love to hear what you think about what we're talking about. Anything. Uh, feel free to take part. I love it. And let me know what you think. But make sure that you do not forget to smash them shits. Don't forget that. Do that right now. Hit that like button and share this out. Get this out everywhere you can. We're just a little independent show, completely dependent on you guys. So share this out and get this seen and get it out there. This is important truth. I'm going to be breaking down some really important and uh, crucial bits of the puzzle that's, sorry, I'm trying to share, that's lording over us. And this show is one of the last havens left for truth in this time of mass deception. We put the truth first here because we believe that if it can be destroyed by the truth, then it should be. Because we are living at the pinnacle of a fabricated world where authenticity is met with rejection, where speaking the truth is met with disdain and exclusion. And I know that it takes immense courage to be genuine in these confusing times. 
but stay in the full armor of God. Keep your head up and keep moving forward because we need individuals like you who are unafraid to stand up for their beliefs. We need people who are willing to speak the truth, especially when it's inconvenient or unpopular. And that's what we're about here. And again, what we're doing tonight is conspiracy theories and chill. I do have some bad news for anybody who is a big Paul fan. Um, Paul still can't be with us. It's just me tonight. It's just me and you guys. I hope he's here in spirit. I hope he's at least here watching. He's uh, he's dealing with some pain. It's hurting. So he's got to recoup up. He's got to get strong again. So we're on our own tonight for part three. But we're breaking down JFK to 9-11. Everything's a rich man's trick. One of the best truth or documentaries I think has ever been made. And it's very important. It's in a lot of ways, it's beginner level. But these are the doors you have to get people to open. And they have to open them for themselves. You, you can bring them to it, but they've got to see it for themselves. And this is a good breakdown of a lot of different things that have to do with how our countries really ran, what's really going on, and who's really in charge. So that's what we're going to be getting in tonight. And it's a good thing that it's conspiracy theories and chill night. You know, we, around here anyway, at this show, we respect conspiracy theories. We're not even ashamed of the label conspiracy theorist. I prefer it. You know, it cuts through the bullshit. Let's everybody know what you're talking about. Conspiracies are real. Theories are real. I'm not ashamed of it. But the World Economic Forum wants to eliminate conspiracy theorists. Uh, you all who rarely... Klaus Schwab's number two guy, he says that all conspiracy theorists need to be eliminated from the internet, that we're too dangerous. So good, fuck him. Even censoring the shit out of us, we're doing so much harm to the World Economic Forum, they want us shut down. Good. Good. I hope we do more harm. They can't silence us. Even if you shut us down on your bunk-ass social media platforms, we still have our voice and we still are leaders in our communities. So there's nothing you can do about it. Something that there is nothing anyone can do about it, but people think there is, is the presidential election. You know, that's coming up. But what's weird about this one, this is a really weird one. Not only does it follow the most obvious rigged election in United States history, but it's the first in which we are like a banana republic where the sitting president throws indictment after indictment after indictment against his competition. Trump just got another indictment, y'all. That's three now. Three indictments. He's facing 561 years in jail. But it's funny. Donald Trump was indicted on felony charges we're working to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the run-up to the violent riot that his supporters at the Capitol supposedly had. Now, the Justice Department is acting to hold him accountable for an unprecedented effort to block the peaceful transfer of presidential power and threatening American democracy. But what's funny is there is two different charges that they could have gone for in this particular indictment that would stop Trump from becoming president of the United States. They didn't go for either one of them. This is fantastic publicity for Trump. 
makes him a hero, gets people to buy back into the system when there's absolutely no reason for them to do so. I think it's perfect. I, I think this is what they're doing and they're playing everybody for fools by making Trump a martyr. But what do you think? You know, I'd love to hear from you. I love hearing what you guys think. But we got a lot to get into. It's Wednesday night, so it's conspiracy theories and chill night. And good, Paul's here. So we'll have his comments, his input. Even though he can't be sitting here in the studio with me, he's here in spirit. Thank you, brother. I'm glad to see you here. But yeah, Hillary tried to overturn the election in 2016. Nothing happened to her. Russiagate, that whole fucking Russiagate thing was to discredit Donald Trump's presidency. Where are the charges in that? You know, I don't believe it. You might believe it. Explain to me why you believe it. I don't. If you guys are ready, though, it is Wednesday night. And on Wednesday nights, we do conspiracy theories and chill. And we got a lot to get into tonight, so we need to get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to Conspiracy Theories and Chill. As you can see, my partner's not here right now. I'm on my own, so give me a minute. It's been a bit since I've done one of these on my own. But we are in the middle of a series, and the show must go on. So we're going to go forward. We're doing the introduction to evil. We're in part three. We're breaking down JFK to 9-11. Everything's a rich man's trick. What we've seen so far has covered the Nazi regime, who was really behind the Nazi regime. Big surprise. It's the same bloodlines that have been in charge this entire time and are still in charge to this day. It had nothing to do with Hitler. He was a front man. It's the Nazi agenda never lost. It just transferred power over to the United States. But it got into all of that. And then... Right now, it is in the process of showing you what took place with the Kennedy assassination. We're actually right at the moment that the motorcade is pulling on to Dealey Plaza. That's where we're at in the movie. So that's where we'll be going in just a second to get back to the introduction to Evil Part 3 and break down more of the secret cabal ruling over our world. It does look that way, doesn't it, Amanda? It really does. It looks like they want to hang him. It looks like they're trying their best to wring him out to dry. But did you hear what I said in the monologue? 
there were two charges that they could have brought against him in this January 6th indictment that would stop him from being able to run for president. And they didn't do it. These are jokes, man. It's not real. I don't think. I think it's theater. You know what I mean? It's just theater. That's really what I feel. But do you think it's believable? This makes sense to you? This is the kind of shit that they would tell us about on our news as a justification to go to war for another country. You know, to stop stuff like this. Subversions of democracy like this. Paul needs at least three hours a day of massages. I know how everybody got three hours a day of massages. Everybody's wife doesn't give them a three-hour massage. That's really sad. It's one of the saddest things I've ever heard. I'm really sorry, guys. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that I'm the only one. Canada blocked all news from social media? What? Trudeau's wife just left him, too. They blocked all news from social media. Wait, did you just come to say you can't be here? You could sit on your phone and comment, sir. I hope you're at least here commenting. Sean says the elite's bloodlines is very interesting and in how they change names like Rothschilds, Rockefeller, Usini family. All right. So we're going to get to the movie because we got a lot to go. This is a beast of a movie. And let's just jump right in. We're going to get to the Kennedy assassination. The motorcade, like I said, is pulling on the Dealey Plaza. And that's where we left off. So if you guys are ready, let's get back to breaking down JFK to 9-11. Everything's a rich man's trick on conspiracy theories and chill. Thank you for being here, Paul. America, the home of the brave and the land of the free, was about to discover that it wasn't what it thought it was. As the president's car made the turn onto Houston, government agents who had sworn an oath to uphold their country's democratic principles, waited alongside mafia killers to murder their own commander-in-chief. One of the men they were working for, Sam Giancana, said this proved that in reality, there was no such thing as white hats and black hats. That notion, he said, was just a sham for saps to cling to. The one thing I recognized was there are no black hats and there are no white hats. They all conduct themselves the exact same. And very good evidence of that is that the CIA would hire two so-called mafia men, Sam Giancana and John Roselli, to assassinate Fidel Castro. Um, if there's such a difference, you're not supposed to have anything to do with each other. But in, in essence, the remark is really they're all in bed together. They all do business together. 
It was now that Abraham Zabruder pressed the trigger on his 8mm cine camera. Ever since that moment the world has accepted that what he recorded was the definitive account of what really happened. What people must appreciate is that what they have just seen is not at all what really happened. Had you actually been there on the day, this is what you would have seen. And doesn't that look a great deal more suspicious? So just exactly what did happen during the 10 seconds that Bruder was filming. To begin with, Dulles, Lansdale and Atley Phillips had tried to get over the problem of volley fire, blowing the president's head clean off by firing in four stages. Stage one was meant to be a single shot by Charles Nicoletti into the back of Kennedy's head from the Daltex building some 40 yards behind. Had he succeeded, the plotters would have had the single assassin with one bullet story they wanted. But in his excitement, the Mafia assassin squeezed the trigger too soon. His bullet ricocheted off the hard chrome sill of the limo's back seat and struck the curb beneath the overpass, sending up a sharp piece of concrete which scratched James Tague's face. Watch again. We clearly see how this little girl stops running and her gaze looks directly at where the shot originated and not up at the sixth floor of the depository. It was now that Umbrella Man took over. Standing right at the curbside, it was his job, should the first shot miss, to give a clear visual signal. Target is not injured. The intelligence chiefs knew that if this situation occurred, Kennedy would now be moving rapidly away from the first sniper. They knew the only way to make sure of getting him was to fusillade the car. So a moment later, two rifles tried to fire from directly in front at exactly the same time to deceive witnesses into thinking there was only one shot. You said you'd killed President Kennedy. At the same time I said I had killed the judge, I said I had killed Kennedy. Well, do you believe Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy? We'll get back to that. Alone? without any aid from a rogue um, agency of the U.S. government, or at least a, a portion not. of the agency. Patsy. I believe you're very naive if you do. Mm -hmm. Harrelson's bullet hit JFK in the throat, and another gunman, hiding in a culvert 50 yards away, up in the embankment of the overpass, made the hole in the windscreen, which was later seen by Dr. Evalier Glanges. The presidential limousine was there had been staying there for some time just watching the back of the emergency room talked to my friend next to me and said look there's a bullet hole in the windshield and pointed it out to them but it was very clear it was a through and through bullet hole through the windshield of the car from the front to the back as Kennedy emerges from behind the road sign his distress is clear while Governor Connolly remains composed this single frame of the Zabruder film makes nonsense of the single bullet theory because it's quite clear both men have not been struck at the same time. Kennedy has now passed through two layers of fire and has not been hit in the head. 
To cover this eventuality, the assassins were given a simple instruction. Fusillade the car with everything. So that in the next few moments, the five remaining riflemen fired, causing the Secret Service agent riding in the front passenger seat, Roy Kellerman, to report a feeling like a jet sonic boom as the hail of bullets whistled into the car. It is now more than three seconds after Kennedy is hit in the throat that Frank Sturgis misses his target altogether and blows out five inches of Governor Connolly's ribs, compressing his lungs and puffing his cheeks. With a bullet which quite clearly struck at far too steep an angle to come from the other end of the depository. In almost the same instant, Eladio del Valle hit the governor in the wrist, Weatherford fired into his thigh, and Nicoletti's second shot hit the chrome frame of the window. A moment later, the best marksman, Malcolm Wallace, shot Kennedy in his upper back the bullet strike witnessed and recorded by all the Secret Service men in the following car. Jackie Kennedy starts looking concerned, and yet even now there are no obvious signs that her husband, held upright by his back brace, has been shot twice. The assassins have so far failed to hit him in the head, and it is now that they play the ace up their sleeve. Here we can finally answer the riddle of where on an empty street you can hide a man with a rifle and how he can manage to shoot a man speeding past him in a limousine. The answer is that he can't and that is why the driver, William Greer, looked around twice to see whether Kennedy had been hit in the head and when he saw he hadn't, as dozens of witnesses including police officers confirmed, he stopped the car completely. His orders was to slow down where the rest of the guys... This is Greer, the, the driver of the presidential limousine. Yeah, presidential yeah. limousine, yeah. slow down almost to stop. It is now that most people have been led to believe that Kennedy was shot in the head by Charles Void Harrelson, the sniper standing on the grassy knoll. This is not true. Because if we look at the angle of elevation of a shot from that area, it's obvious that a shot originating from above and right would have pushed Kennedy's head down and left, whereas it's quite clear that his head is knocked upwards and to the left by the impact. Look at Jackie. So where did that bullet come from? Incredibly, the answer has lain hidden I thought it was in the most well-known and iconic image thing, from the assassination of the motorcycle policeman heaving his bike onto its stand. Look now as we freeze frame him here. This is the moment when the whole world was looking up the hill toward the man who had fired from the grassy knoll, but that is not I where the police officer is looking. He is looking down into the storm drain because that is where that shot at the stationary car came from. The shot which all of the well-known assassination witnesses described as coming from behind the picket fence, missed completely and ripped up the grass at Jean Hill's feet. She did not even notice, but we know this is true because the FBI told her so. So who were the men who fired unseen from the storm drains on Elm Street? One thing we know is that they were very young, 
and had to be brought into the conspiracy because they had to crawl into a filthy, smelly sewer, something which the older, experienced Mafia assassins would never have dreamed of doing. They were basically two kids, looking for excitement. The first was Curtis Laverne Crayford, also known as Larry Crayford. Formerly CIA, he had worked for Ruby at the Carousel Club, and Ruby had told everyone his name was Lee Harvey Oswald, until Lee Harvey Oswald walked in. But while above ground, the world was taking pictures and running and screaming and trying to figure out what had happened, the other young man was stumbling along 400 yards of a reeking, fetid Dallas sewer pipe to emerge from this culvert. And he was not Lee Harvey Oswald, or Roscoe White, or J.D. Tippett, nor even a Cuban or Russian communist. His name was Jack Allen Lawrence. And we know that after stumbling up this bank, he turned up 15 minutes later at the Lincoln Mercury car showroom, where he'd obtained a job with false references, pale, sweating, and, on a hot, sunny day in Dallas, covered in mud. Telling his co-workers, Albert Bogard and Robert Tater, he had been ill that morning, he stumbled into the men's room and threw up, while they, feeling his behaviour was suspicious, called the police, who made a record of the entire incident. Back at the plaza, the guilt of the radio men coordinating the gunfire can be seen from their behaviour. These two, Orlando Bosch and the Umbrella Man, have a seat, while everyone else runs around them. Bosch makes a report that the hit was successful, then casually walks away. Just like the chief radio coordinator, Jim Hicks, with the radios clearly visible in their back pockets. A few yards away, the CIA's clean-up squad have begun working to remove all evidence useful to a forensic team. Deputy Sheriff Buddy Walters is here seen finding the bullet which struck in the grass near the manhole cover. He hands it on to one of the fake FBI men, who pockets it. While this is going on, Rogers, Harrelson and E. Howard Hunt are discovered, hiding in the boxcars of the train which they hoped would be their getaway vehicle, until it's prevented from moving by railway dispatcher and key witness Lee Bowers. They are photographed repeatedly as they are marched to the Dallas courthouse. And we can clearly see in this picture the radio receiver Hunt is wearing in his right ear, which is identical to the receivers worn by those Dallas police officers who were part of the plot. As they walk, they are overseen by Colonel Ed Lansdale, who secures their release and begins to give the press the cover story that this man is the major suspect and that acting alone he shot the president from behind. The truth, as we now know, is that eight separate snipers, firing 16 shots in four separate stages, had tried to make certain of killing the president by hitting him in the head and had failed abysmally. The shooting on the day had been nothing to write home about. A third of all the shots had missed the car completely. Had it not been for the ruse of bribing the driver to break at a point painted on the curbside, which is still visible, so that Jack Lawrence could shoot Kennedy in the head from just 15 feet away, the president might have survived. Think how detailed that is. They so now we must address the question. Involved. Why does the Zabruder film not show this very obvious setup of the limousine stopping for the headshot? 
The answer, of course, is that it has been tampered with. In the 1960s, Hollywood special effects teams had developed techniques for masking off segments of film frames to disguise the true movement of figures within the picture. In the Zabruder film, frames have been removed in order to fake a continuous flowing motion so that we don't see the very obvious setup which dozens of witnesses reported. If you look now at the top of the frame, the doctoring of the film becomes perfectly obvious in the way in which the figures are blurred and yet the shadows are sharp, which is impossible. This CIA tampering with the evidence becomes even clearer when the Zabruder film is run next to the Orville Nix film taken from the other side. It's easy to see from the way the motorcycles suddenly close on the limousine that it stops completely. And we can see that frames have also been removed from the next film by the way in which Agent Clint Hill appears to move sideways while running forwards before leaping on the car. As the mad dash to Parkland Hospital begins, the chief coordinator in the assassination plot, George Herbert Walker Bush, casually relaxes with hands in his pockets at the entrance of the school book depository. Now this is going to be one of those all too familiar Kennedy assassination moments in which people will say, well, yes, it could be him, but how can we be sure? Because we've seen this kind of thing before with Badgeman. However, a gentleman who I think must be a police detective has posted a YouTube video in which he utilizes the latest forensic techniques for identifying murder suspects by making a comparison between the photo taken in Dealey Plaza and one of George Bush in conversation with Richard Nixon during Watergate. This man points out that this person has exactly the same skull shape, exactly the same hairline, chin and nose as George Bush. He is also wearing the same type of suit, white shirt and exactly the same type of tie. He is exactly the same height, the same weight, is wearing clothing which matches down to his shoes, but most importantly, he has a characteristic mannerism of cocking his right wrist when he puts his hands in his pockets. We know from this declassified FBI memo that George Bush was in Dallas, staying at the Sheraton, on November 22nd. So can there be any doubt about this person's identity? Surrounded by the corrupt policemen he was coordinating, Bush knew already that if an honest officer should happen to catch one of the assassins, it would, because of what Mark Lane rightly calls plausible deniability, make no difference. Because what would they find? Mafia hoods with prison records as long as their arms? or contract killers like Charles Harrelson? They certainly wouldn't have found anyone who carried CIA credentials or anyone whose involvement with the government could be traced. But even while he smiled and chatted to his fellow killers, Bush was unaware that the plotters had just made their first big mistake. They knew that they had to forensically control the body from the moment the shots were fired. And the moment Kennedy entered Trauma Room 1, that control had to be relinquished. Although they had CIA agents placed in the emergency unit, these people were not aware of the throat wound, which could hardly be seen because it was so tiny. It was at this moment 
that all the Dallas doctors and nurses like Aubrey Bell made a mental note of this very obvious sign of a frontal entry shot. One of the Dallas medical team, Dr. Charles Crenshaw, a junior doctor at that time, vividly recalls what the first professionals in the Kennedy killing had to deal with. The second wound was here in the throat, right above the necktie. It was a small opening, very small, three to five millimeters, about the size of your little finger. I looked at the wound again. I wanted to know and remember this the rest of my life. And the rest of my life, I will always know he was shot from the front. And also described the portion missing from the rear of Kennedy's head after the impact of the frangible bullet, which hit him in the right temple. The bullet struck about where and passed about where? From here right. through. And taking out the... The back or the occipital part. The back of your head. This was gone. At approximately 1 o'clock Central Standard Time today, here in Dallas. He died of a gunshot wound. This information in soon made its way to the media. And this is why, at the very first press conference, Press Secretary Malcolm Kilduff correctly described the cause of death and direction of the shot. In order to find a means with which to contradict this evidence, the cover-up now began in earnest, with the summoning from the Rustland Funeral Home of a CIA agent who was known for being the best in the business at reconstructive surgery on cadavers, John Melvin Liggett. This man was actually attending a funeral when he was told of the President's assassination and asked to go to Parkland by the coroner. What he didn't know as he drove away was that one of his clients in this macabre and gruesome story was at that moment still alive. When he was arrested years later by New York police detective Jim Rothstein, Frank Sturgis, on discovering that Rothstein was a Bay of Pigs veteran like himself, got into an old army buddy's conversation with him and said, first of all, that after the assassination, he returned to the Miami safe house where he ridiculed Marita Lorenz for missing history. It was all perfectly safe, he told her. No cops, no newspaper investigation. Everything was covered. I asked Sturgis, Jesus Christ, Frank, did you shoot the president? Did you have something to do with that? He said, ah, who gives a shit? Yeah, who's going to prove it? He said, we kill a lot of people. What the hell's the difference? Sturgis then went on to say that Dallas police officer J.D. Tibbet was actually gunned down by the radio talk show host G. Gordon Liddy, who was at that time a CIA agent working with E. Howard Hunt. And here we must address a question which puzzled assassination researchers for years. Why did a Dallas policeman have to die within a few minutes of President Kennedy? What possible function could he have played in the overall plot as a corpse? One would think the authorities could have caught the fleeing Patsy without any need to incriminate him any further. So why did the life of J.D. Tibbet also have to end on the 22nd of November 1963? Where did he fit in? In only the last few years, a wonderful investigator called Robert D. Morningstar discovered one tiny little fact about Jefferson Davis Tibbet, which became the most important single police in the completion of this puzzle. 
because Officer Tibbet had a nickname. When he was at work, his fellow officers always used to call him JFK because at 39 years of age, he looked exactly like him. In the only well-known picture of Tippett, his Elvis haircut makes him appear very youthful. But having turned grey and having nearly turned 40, most people felt his resemblance to Kennedy was uncanny. What Tippett never knew, as he drove past assassination witnesses Jack Tatum, Domingo Benavides and Aquila Clemens, was that he had been selected to play the role of the president in death. Researchers have always believed it couldn't be a coincidence that Tippett was shot in the right temple, just like JFK some 45 minutes earlier. They wondered why bullets had been removed from his body in the ambulance, and why, when he was pronounced dead on arrival at the Methodist Hospital, it was felt necessary to move his body to Parkland. With their concentration firmly fixed on the casket of the deceased president, the newsmen completely ignored the ambulance which spirited away the body of J.D. Tibbet, so that it could be loaded onto Air Force Two where John Melvin Liggett was waiting. When Kennedy's casket arrived at Love Field a few minutes later, Clint Hill, the agent who jumped on the car, recalled that all the people aboard Air Force One were told they had to go forward to witness the swearing-in of Lyndon Baines Johnson. This, of course, was just a ruse, to get Jackie Kennedy to leave her husband's body, and the moment she was out of the way, his cadaver was stolen and placed aboard Air Force Two next to the cadaver of J.D. Tibbet. Many people have seen this famous picture, in which LBJ is smiling at Congressman Albert Thomas, a moment after becoming president, and he is winking back. We haven't known until now just how huge and terrible a secret he was sharing with Johnson, because at that moment, on the plane right alongside the most highly qualified specialist in reconstructive surgery and embalming in the country, John Melvin Liggett, was starting to make a facsimile of the dead president, using the body of J.D. Tibbet, in order to obscure the true extent of the damage to Kennedy's head and make it seem consistent with a shot from behind. But Liggett realised immediately this was well-nigh impossible, because having been told over the radio about the headshot, Liddy took it upon himself to try and ape this damage by firing into Tippett's torso and then, when he was down, firing into his right temple, instead of into the back of the head as he'd been instructed. This was a second huge mistake. The human brain has a consistency like play school plasticine. Fire a bullet through it and it is very easy for a skilled pathologist to track the bullet's path at autopsy. What Liggett wanted to show to any investigators was a brain that looked like this. What he had was one brain which looked like this, and another which looked like this. A large portion of Kennedy's brain Damn. had been ripped out by the impact of the explosive or frangible bullet. Damn! And what remained was filled with tiny shards of lead, some of them microscopic, which might take all night to locate. Liggett was terrified. The plotters had asked him to play Dr. Frankenstein at 30,000 feet. Yet with all his embalming experience, he instantly realised the botched job was the best he could possibly deliver. In his panic, 
he sawed off Tippett's skull and simply ripped out the entire brain oh to at God. least make sure no one could track the bullet which, after Liddy's error, had so obviously come from the wrong direction. He then compounded Liddy's error by making a large hole in the rear of the head to ape the damage to Kennedy's head. With this done, he rebuilt the skull, hurriedly sewed the scalp back together, and then set about the gruesome task of trying to make the cadaver of J.D. Tibbet more closely resemble the cadaver of John F. Kennedy. By shaving eyebrows, bringing forward Tippett's slightly more receding hairline, filling in missing segments of both heads with plaster of Paris, and rebuilding portions of the flesh with wax. Wow. Liggett performed this ghoulish service while the aircraft he was on, Air Force Two, went through the usual procedure of leapfrogging Air Force One to arrive at Andrews Air Force Base slightly earlier. He wasn't given long enough, and in the rush to get finished, the plotters now made their third and most stupid mistake. Instead of placing Tippett's body in a casket identical to the one aboard Air Force One, they placed him in a Spartan grey metal coffin inside a body bag. As the TV media showed these distressing pictures to a world reeling in shock, it's hardly surprising that no one ever dreamed this casket could be empty, but it was. As it was driven away, out of sight of the media, the two bodies were taken from Air Force Two and loaded onto a helicopter. It was at this point that the two honest men, FBI agents Francis X. O'Neill and his partner, William Siebert, became crucial figures in the story. They explained to researcher David Lifton that they made the journey to the Naval Hospital at Bethesda in the car behind the hearse which carried Jackie and Bobby and most notably Admiral George Berkeley who made sure he stayed with the empty coffin by sitting on another man's lap. Upon reaching Bethesda, Seabird and O'Neill said Berkeley then guided the family members into the building while the hearse was ordered to the rear to unload. But that was where the simplicity ended. The FBI men and many other witnesses recalled a scene of absolute mayhem in which no one seemed to know what was going on, and military men were rushing around everywhere exchanging anecdotes about decoy ambulances they had been ordered to follow, which had become high-speed chases around the hospital grounds as these vehicles raced away. It seems this confusion was created with the intention of misleading both the press and the large respectful crowd which had gathered on the lawn. People were asking each other which ambulance contained the president's body. Then a rumour started that it was coming by helicopter, but which one? Everyone watching that night recalls the air was filled with them, and the FBI men also told Lifton that in the midst of all this mayhem, they helped to carry the casket inside. This was flatly denied by the team of Navy men who said they did it alone. It is therefore perfectly clear that two bodies were brought to the morgue separately whilst confusion reigned. And it was now that the plotters themselves became confused by the mayhem they had created because they left J.D. Tibbet's cadaver in the wrong casket. It should have been switched and gone into the autopsy room in the large expensive casket used in Dallas. I helped put President Kennedy's body in a bronze ceremonial casket on November 22, 1963 at Parker Memorial Hospital. Instead, mortuary technician Paul O'Connor received a coffin so dull and nondescript 
No one could believe it had been utilized to transport the body of a president. It was a very plain casket, and when I say plain, I mean it was a pinkish gray. It had pink and gray uh, on the sides. Uh, there was nothing fancy about it as far as being bronze. Uh, it wasn't bronze. The autopsy then became a farce the moment it began. While Siebert and O'Neill made their now famous and entirely correct observation that the body seemed to have undergone surgery prior to autopsy, mainly in the head area, Commander Humes himself testified that the moment he touched the head, pieces of the skull fell down onto the autopsy table. That is not possible unless surgery was done before post-mortem. And that surgery could only have been performed aboard the aircraft because there was no other time to do it. Humes then found that he had to try to work with Admirals Berkeley, Galloway and Kenny actually touching his elbows and became increasingly confused and embarrassed himself at his utter failure to find any trace of the bullets which killed the President. Of course, this was hardly surprising, considering the President lay dead in an adjoining room and that Liggett had removed all the bullets from J.D. Tibbet. As the autopsy proceeded, O'Connor revealed that Berkeley interfered constantly in the procedure, steering Humes away from the torso, where he would have found the holes made by Liddy. And while everyone in the room remained aghast and disturbed by the huge hole in the back of the head and absence of any brain matter, two porters O'Connor had never seen before came in pushing a trolley, which had a sheet on it which hid a small lump. They had told people in the corridor it was a dead newborn baby, but it turned out to be a complete brain, which could only have come from a third cadaver. This was weighed and pickled in formaldehyde before anyone even had a chance to inquire when it had been removed. The most farcical moment of all came when Humes faced Arlen Specter in front of the Warren Commission and found the leading counsel pressing him to say that the wound he found in the back of the head was an entry wound. His incredible answer was that the bullet could only have entered and exited from the rear. Humes actually told the world that the bullet had done a U-turn inside the President's skull. Now that we know the truth, it may seem remarkable that David Lifton got so close and yet never quite realised that what he had been investigating for 15 years was a body switch. But can we really be surprised? Like so many other decent men, Lifton was simply unable to imagine that anyone could ever think up such a grotesque and degenerate conspiracy. He simply never realised that what he was dealing with was nothing less than the devil himself. And for those who find all this impossible to accept, one of the devils who murdered JFK, Frank Sturgis, was perfectly candid about how routine body switches had become in the CIA by 1963. There was a switch. A body switch. A body switch, yes. The truth about the autopsy is that the devils who killed Kennedy messed up very badly. They had wanted to show the world actual photographs of a single bullet wound from behind. As it was, they had to resort to a lot of badly faked photographs, which critics like Robert Grodin easily discredited, and silly drawings, which everyone realised did not line up anywhere near the schoolbook depository. With the autopsy over, Mrs Kennedy and the President's brother 
were shown the body prepared for burial. Not surprisingly, they were wholly unconvinced by Leggett's attempts to make a Dallas police officer look like the President of the United States. Witnesses there at the time said Bobby scoffed and said, it doesn't look anything like him. While Mrs. Kennedy became adamant, it isn't Jack, she declared. That looks like something you'd find in Madame Tussaud's wax museum. Sorry, that's a bad pause. Uh, I feel like I got to say something. This guy goes too fast. So this is very, very detailed research. He has a very strong theory here of exactly what went down, down to how many people they killed to pull off this, which so far is three different people died to fake Kennedy's assassination. Paul's talking about the plotters had everything figured out. And then Joan, Kennedy's poor children had to continuously see videos of their father being brutally murdered. That would be horrible. Many people have studied this alleged picture of the president's remains that looks fake. and wondered how it could possibly be John F. Kennedy when the Zabruder film look, clearly look, shows Jackie. this right temple area Boom. being blown apart by the impact of the frangible bullet. The simple answer is that this is not JFK. It's the corpse of Officer J.D. Tibbet, surgically altered to look like the president. On arriving home, Liggett was informed the plot was in serious trouble. His wife Lois told how he staggered in the door, unkempt, dishevelled, and quite obviously exhausted, which was very out of character for a man who took pride in always being neat, tidy, and organised. It was about 24 hours before I heard from him. He came home, and he walked in the door, and when I saw him, he physically looked like he had really been through a very traumatic experience. His clothes were disarrayed, and that was so out of character for him. And he said, we're going to get out of town for a while until all of this blows over. And that was a quote, because I thought, well, what blows over? Minutes later, they were speeding down the highway towards Corpus Christi, utterly bewildered as to what on earth was going on. Chain-smoking at the wheel, Liggett was looking increasingly nervous. It wasn't just that his botched reconstruction had failed to convince and would lead to courtroom testimony of bullets doing U-turns inside the President's head. The problem was that the patsy was still alive. Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig told investigators it was plain to him that Lee Harvey Oswald was not meant to survive his arrest procedure. He said that when he arrived at the Texas Theatre, a group of his fellow officers were waiting at the rear, guns drawn, and that it was quite obvious that Oswald was meant to make a break out the back door where he would run into a hail of gunfire. However, Oswald himself was an intelligence agent, and once he realised he had been chosen as the fall guy, 
He briefly prolonged his existence by loudly yelling so that all the witnesses present could hear, I am not resisting arrest. I am not resisting arrest. This is why Liggett, like all the others involved in the plot, was shaking in his boots on November 23rd. They were all aware that a sharp lawyer could get Oswald released simply by discovering that the chain of evidence had been broken in relation to Kennedy's remains. Once free to talk, and with intimate knowledge of the major players in the assassination plot, he could have gotten the heads of the FBI and CIA, all the military chiefs of staff, the mafia chieftains and the Dallas oil men all thrown in jail together for murder. Many people have wondered how the plotters could be so unbelievably dumb and so unbelievably obvious as to have Oswald murdered live on national television. The simple truth was that they had absolutely no choice. Their botched assassination attempt had proved that they were not as smart as they thought they were. The actual shooting had gone very badly. Most of the shots had missed. They'd had to botch the autopsy and now they were having to botch the silencing of the patsy. Lois Liggett recalled that the moment Ruby fired, the atmosphere in their motel room evaporated. The minute he saw that, he looked at me and said, everything's okay now, and you could just see his face. He was like all the pressure had been taken off of him. All of a sudden he was like, sigh of relief, let's go, we can go home now. It was basically... Pack your things, come on, we're leaving. Now we can go. The family turned around and went straight back home to discover that Mr Liggett now enjoyed a new vocation. It appeared he had suddenly come into millions, which bought his family a big new house and himself a new lifestyle, which included many wild poker parties at which, among others, he hosted David Ferry. This was not Lois Liggett's scene. She divorced him, heard that not long afterwards he was arrested for murder and then shot dead while trying to escape. But this was not the end of Liggett's story. His new wife told Lois that the man she buried could not have been John Melvin Liggett because the corpse she was shown had a moustache and he couldn't grow one. Then many years later, Lois Liggett actually saw her deceased ex-husband in a casino while on a trip to Las Vegas. Quite clearly, this man had been the beneficiary of yet another CIA body switch. And to this day, doubts remain as to the true fate of Jack Ruby, Lee Oswald, John Liggett and the President himself. Many researchers now believe the plotters may have kept Kennedy's remains as a souvenir and buried J.D. Tibbet in Arlington Cemetery. Can you imagine how sick that is? All added together, the pilots, spotters, radio men, mafia assassins and farmers, physicians and corrupt agents from the FBI, CIA, and Dallas police had cost the American Nazis $25 million, approximately $2 billion in today's money. But they could afford it. In the years that followed, they cynically kept the war in Vietnam going by putting in just enough troops so that the line never moved forward or back. And while the American that's what we're doing in Ukraine right now. on military-industrial contracts, their Mafia friends used the CIA's complete immunity to smuggle trillions of dollars worth of cocaine and heroin around the world. Sir, uh, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small air base at Mena, Arkansas. This base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and uh, the CIA to help the Iran-Contras 
and they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. And then they took the money and bought weapons and took them back to the Contras, all of which was illegally, as you know, under the Bolin Act. But tell me, did they tell you that this had to be in existence because of national security? Well, let me answer the question. No, they didn't tell me anything about it. Ooh. <laughs> of course, when criminals are making easy Dirty money, they tend to become lazy and careless, and this is what led to Watergate. Someone's here. When the two plainclothes police officers switched the lights on in the Watergate building, who should they find hiding there? Frank Sturgis and Bernard Barker, who were working for E. Howard Hunt, exactly the same people who had murdered President Kennedy nine years earlier. Sturgis even told the San Francisco Chronicle that the true reason for their burglary of the Watergate offices was to retrieve compromising pictures of CIA men in Dealey Plaza which the Democrats were going to have published. Of course, somebody had to take a fall for conducting such a woefully sloppy operation, and when Howard Hunt found himself in prison for 33 months, he rather turned against his old friends for making him into the patsy on this occasion. He began sending messages to President Richard Nixon that he might just tell all he knew about what really happened in Dallas on November 22, 1963, and one of Nixon's presidential aides, Dean Birch, recalls that when he heard about this, George Bush broke out all over in assholes and shit himself to death. It was this situation which led directly to what journalists now refer to as the Watergate murder, the crash of Flight 553. On December the 8th, 1972, Dorothy Wetzel Hunt, the wife of E. Howard Hunt, boarded a flight from Washington to Chicago. A CIA agent like her husband, she carried a quarter of a million dollars in her bag, which was to buy the silence of his Watergate co-conspirators. Travelling along with Dorothy was CBS news correspondent Michelle Clark, whose CIA boyfriend had been able to give her a unique journalistic insight into what Watergate was really all about. These two women boarded the aircraft with a dozen other individuals who at that time had information which E. Howard Hunt claimed was going to blow the White House out of the water. As the plane made its final approach through fog and very low cloud, the people living near the aircraft runway sensed something rather strange was going on. The normally quiet suburban street suddenly filled up with cars, and a moment later, having been told to power down too early, Flight 553 emerged from the mist and clipped the branches of some trees before crashing on top of several bungalows on West 70 Street. The watching neighbours were then staggered to see FBI agents immediately leap out of their cars and start rooting around in the debris, a full ten minutes 
before the fire brigade even arrived on the scene. 44 people, including Dorothy Hunt and Michelle Clark, were killed in the crash. E. Howard Hunt served his time and came out of prison a widower and a million dollars richer. The Nazi shallow government of the United States had faced a blackmail threat and the possibility that their complicity in the murder of President Kennedy might become public knowledge. Their response was to bring down a civilian airliner onto a residential district. They covered it up by having FBI agents on the ground seek out and remove all incriminating documents from the dead bodies found in the wreckage. And when the local TV station received an anonymous phone call from a radio ham who had monitored the deliberately misleading exchanges from the Midway Control Tower, which caused 553 to crash, an FBI agent simply confiscated all the tapes, thus eradicating all information pertaining to the accident. This is how the agents of the US government now behave. They function essentially as a goon squad of mercenaries and murderers, hardly any different to Hitler's Gestapo, and are used as a private intelligence service and as personal hitmen for America's richest families, their only role being to cover up the dirty tricks which the rich people are playing on their fellow countrymen every day. Along with threats and murder, the most important weapon used by this private army of footpads in this ongoing cover-up is disinformation. And it's here that we can now address a question which will probably be bothering the huge numbers of people who have taken an interest in the Kennedy assassination and in the many documentaries produced by assassination researchers over the years. What happened to Badgeman? The answer is very simple. He never existed. He was simply a phantom, created by the CIA's disinformation machine to lay down a trail which led nowhere. So now another question appears. If this is so, why have so many people spent a quarter of a century trying to discover his identity? By examining this question, it is now possible to reveal the extraordinary lengths America's rulers have gone to in order to hide the truth about the Kennedy assassination. America's oligarchs grossly underestimated the courage and skill of those who tried to uncover the truth about the Kennedy killing, none more so than the brilliant and tenacious Mark Lane. By the mid-1960s, his film Rush to Judgment had left the country in no doubt that they had been multiple gunmen acting together in some sort of conspiracy. Once he had proved this beyond any doubt, the only question remaining was how big was the conspiracy? So it came as no surprise when polls started showing that 9 out of 10 Americans believed it had to be the CIA. This internal memorandum reveals just how nervous the agency was about this development. It spells out in no uncertain terms the concern spreading in the corridors of power and the urgent need to rectify this situation through the use of assets in the media. This great image problem led America's Nazis into initiating Operation Mockingbird, an ongoing policy of using the colossal wealth they were now amassing from drugs and weapons sales to buy up as many TV and film companies, newspapers and local and national radio stations as they could lay their hands on. Now to the point where by the 1970s they were proudly boasting that everyone of any significance in the media is CIA. All Do the way you the have 70s. any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal? We do have people who submit pieces to other two American journals. Do you have any people 
paid by the CIA who are working for television networks. This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in executive session. Virtually every well-known journalist, newspaper editor and television presenter became a secret CIA agent, as did many entertainers and film stars. The question now was how best to use trusted public figures like Walter Cronkite. And this was how the first investigative documentaries about the Kennedy assassination came to be made. It will come as a terrific shock to those who have sought truth and solace in these many films, feature articles and TV specials to learn that every last one of them, including Oliver Stone's JFK, was actually produced by the CIA. is entirely controlled and it has been since the 70s that's a fact and it's still true they got exposed and they say they stopped but they did not a classic early example of this kind of disinformation was the Nova film which featured two scientists Brian Holstrom and Steve Isabel who found Badgeman in a tiny fragment of the famous Mary Moorman Polaroid through photographic enhancement. But when investigators took the trouble to actually measure the size of these three figures, it became obvious that they were so tiny they were too small to even be children. Using the scale provided by Abraham Zabruder over on the right, it's clear that these alleged people are so lacking in stature they wouldn't actually have been able to look over the stockade fence. The truth is that they never existed. And so the question now is, who were Holstrom and Isabel? And who, for that matter, was Gordon Arnold, the old-age pensioner who appeared in The Men Who Killed Kennedy to claim that Badgeman had kicked him and taken his camera? I could be the only one in... The answer is that they were all professional actors, because this is how the devil operates. Devils mix lies with truth in order to make the lies sound more plausible. And it seems that the idea for using actors in this way might very likely have come from E. Howard Hunt himself. After Hunt's deathbed confession, in which he admitted the involvement of the CIA, his son, St. John Hunt, posted many revealing statements about what kind of character his father was. It's quite well known that E. Howard Hunt wrote spy novels and screenplays. And when he was discussing this, St. John Hunt maintained his father tried to live his life as if every day was another exciting scene from a movie, to the total exclusion of his own family. The way St. John Hunt put it was... He would never cut carrots or go shopping with us or anything like that. James Bond doesn't have a family. Historians are well aware that the CIA studies everything, which is impressive. And it now seems very plain 
that they were greatly influenced by the brilliance of the Levinson and Link Columbo series, particularly one episode, Murder, Smoke and Shadows, in which the killer, who is a ruthless young movie director, tries to confuse and mislead Columbo through his powers of creating illusion, only to have the tables turned when this is done back to him, because the whole point of that episode is that the audience never know who is and who isn't supposed to be an actor. The Men Who Killed Kennedy series was laid out in the same way. Whilst a few of the interviewees, like the Willis family, were genuine, most of the people claiming to be witnesses were simply actors, whose only job was to keep people's minds on the grassy knoll, so they would never think about the storm drains and where the shots actually originated. Oliver Stone's film was made to serve exactly the same purpose. It's also very clear that the CIA spent a lot of time studying the emotional breakdown in interviews with people like the ambulance driver, Aubrey Reich. Intelligence agents are fully aware that when an audience sees someone sobbing from grief on screen, they tend to become emotional themselves. This is how sensitive, humane people react. And when this happens, you're no longer thinking. And when you're no longer thinking critically, when you suspend scepticism for the sake of emotionalism, you can be fooled. I just, I wanted to tell you why I grieve. But why I don't despair. I'm sorry. Of course, having heard this, People will wonder how anyone could be cynical to such a degree, and it's a perfectly legitimate question, because as we shall see later, this would not be the last time that the American public were fooled by actors sobbing on national TV. And these monstrous fabrications were not confined only to television. In 2003, a book was published called Blood, Money and Power, ostensibly written by Texas law attorney Bar McClellan. This book signalled a shift in establishment policy by claiming that Lyndon Baines Johnson, a natural suspect as the king who might have killed the king, was behind the entire plot and used his own attorney, Ed Clark, to pay off the gunman. Researchers noticed that at exactly the same time a lot of information suddenly became available about all the murder plots LBJ had been involved in with Cliff Carter and Billy Solestes. We were then treated to the sensational deathbed confession of E. Howard Hunt. And in the book itself, the serious researchers found this extraordinary paragraph. Wallace sent it on Kennedy's head and fired. The shot went almost 200 feet but was barely low and slightly to the right, hitting the president in the back shoulder blade. The bullet was deflected upward ever so slightly, exiting at the tie knot. The bullet's jacket separating to hit and crack the windshield, the remaining slug hitting the curbing in front of James Tague, an onlooker standing in front of the triple underpass on Commerce Street. The slug knocked cement shards in all directions. A splinter nicked Tague on the cheek. So just exactly what is going on here? This is quite obviously a ludicrous assertion. So what is it all about? What it's all about is that the CIA actually wrote this book. They knew 
that the critics had been able to laugh loud and long at the single-bullet theory because the FBI had had to change their story. At first, they had accepted the indisputable evidence that James Tay was scratched by a bullet as he watched from below the overpass because they initially claimed that the first shot alone had gone through the President and the Governor making seven separate wounds in two different men. The second shot was the headshot, and presumably the third struck Tag. However, once the Zabruda film and dozens of eyewitnesses made it plain the first shot missed, the FBI had a problem. How could they account for the throat shot, headshot, and Tag shot with just two remaining bullets? This utterly ridiculous paragraph was a lame attempt after 40 years to come up with an answer and the lengths the CIA went to to get people to believe it were contrived to say the least. It's first of all the simplest matter to refute this version of events by asking how the CIA could possibly know this is how it happened. The bullets splitting apart in mid-air? Are they saying they had Dealey Plaza rigged with fast motion cameras which allowed them to replay the flight of every bullet in slow motion? If so, we'd all love to see those pictures. And even more to this, Bar McClellan's interview became the linchpin in the final episode of The Men Who Killed Kennedy, which was then banned from public broadcasting after a lawsuit was allegedly brought against the History Channel by former Presidents Carter and Ford and their friends Jack Valenti, Bill Moyers and Lady Bird Johnson. Of course, this was just more disinformation. What the plotters hoped to achieve was that by getting the series banned, but making it available on the internet. The seekers after truth would be duped into thinking it must be true, precisely because it had been banned from mainstream media. It's a double bluff. It is quite possible, after all of this ludicrous skullduggery, that even the CIA themselves couldn't remember what purpose it was all supposed to serve. But the general idea was that the public was supposed to swallow the notion that Lyndon Baines Johnson was the primary culprit in this entire affair because he's dead and can't speak for himself. It is absolute nonsense to suggest any such thing. Lyndon Baines Johnson was, like Hitler and Richard Nixon, a mere puppet of the oil men and the merchant bankers and military industrialists, Agreed. something he finally admitted to. I can't uh, honestly say that I've ever been completely relieved of the fact that uh, there might have been international connections. You mean you still feel that there might might have been? Uh, well, I have not completely discounted. The notion that he was the criminal mastermind behind the Kennedy assassination is simply another disinformation falsehood dreamed up by the CIA. He was most definitely involved in the plot and offered up his personal hitman, Mac Wallace, to be part of it. But the men who actually masterminded the plot were Alan Dulles and David Attlee Phillips, with George Bush being the most important figure in the actual execution of the plan. And even they, in the end, proved themselves to be just as crude and obvious as anyone else in the way they took care of anyone who might incriminate them. On the 22nd of February 1967, Eladio Del Valle and David Ferry were both murdered within minutes of each other when it seemed they might give information to the Jim Garrison investigation. 
Charles Void Harrelson and Milwaukee Phil Alderisio suffered convenient early deaths in jail, and having been ordered to testify before the House Select Committee on Assassinations, both Charles Nicoletti and George de Morinschild were shot dead at the same time on the 29th of March 1977. Having been scheduled to testify before the same committee, Johnny Roselli met a similar fate. His body was found floating in an oil drum in Dumbfounding Bay, Miami, just after Malcolm Wallace was murdered in exactly the same way as Lee Bowers. On a stretch of empty American highway, his car was forced off the road, then CIA agents smashed his head into the steering wheel until he died, to make it appear like a single car accident. Not long afterwards, Sam Giancarlo was shot in the back of the head while cooking sausages, and his spy inside the Chicago police force, Richard Kane, was blasted to death with a sawn-off shotgun in Rose's Sandwich Shop on the 19th of December, 1973. Absolute proof that George H.W. Bush was the most important figure behind these grisly murders and the Kennedy assassination surfaced quite recently in a declassified FBI memo which revealed he was working for the CIA in 1963 and not from 77 onwards, as he'd always claimed. He had been a lifelong friend of George de Morinschild, who had actually begged him for help when he realised the CIA were trying to kill him. It was therefore rather ironic that when the police checked de Morinschild's wallet, they found an address card, which gave them a direct lead straight to the guilty party had they but chosen to follow it up. It said... George Poppy Bush, his CIA codename, Zapata Petroleum, Midland, Texas. It became a farewell note from the man who coordinated the crime of the century, a man whose father, Prescott Bush, had created the CIA in the first place, along with his friends some 30 years before, purely in order to take care of their own business interests. They arrogantly believed they were more intelligent than anyone. But in the end, the means the George Bush-led CIA chose to silence all the major underworld figures who might incriminate them proved to be every bit as crude and obvious as Ruby's killing of Oswald on television. The whole point of George Bush and his Central Intelligence Agency was that they were supposed to be intelligent, and yet in the end, they couldn't even fool little old ladies. And who was going to inhibit them? The gangsters that are running this country is going to inhibit somebody. All institutions of the American government are essentially a gangster syndicate. Yep. And everybody knows this. So perhaps it's time now to ask what we have learned and how best we can use this new understanding about the West's secret history to evaluate what is really going on in our world right now. To begin with, let's answer a couple of questions which have perplexed many people over the years. A great many researchers and historians have wondered why the Kennedy family themselves almost seem to be aiding and abetting the cover-up by choosing to be so quiet about the assassination itself. Including After the revelations of Chuck Giancana, there now seems little doubt that this is because they know a full disclosure of Joe Kennedy's dirty political dealings with the Mafia would likely leave the Kennedy name in a very tarnished state. Up until now, history has tended to give the Kennedy patriarch a distinguished and squeaky clean image which went along with his appointment as the American ambassador to Britain. Like most things about the ruling class, this image is false because it's clear that Joe Kennedy was every bit as big a crook 
as his business associate, Sam Giancana. However, it also seems necessary now to revise the entire history of the Kennedy brothers. The reputation of Edward Kennedy never recovered from the Chappaquiddick incident, in which Mary Jo Kopechny lost her life when she drowned in his overturned car when he allegedly drove off this unlit bridge whilst under the influence. At the time, the public believed this was a married man misbehaving, but it's come to light recently that our old friends Frank Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt were seen in the Martha's Vineyard area just prior to the accident. Once again, it's the same dirty people pulling the same dirty tricks. The media's treatment of this affair destroyed any chance Edward Kennedy might have had of becoming president, and we do now have to wonder if this was yet another example of the CIA controlling public opinion. To the same end, it is also now clear why such venerable institutions as the BBC and other prominent European broadcasters have assisted in the cover-up. They always knew the Kennedy assassination was a can of worms, and that if the whole truth in the story were pursued vigorously, it would lead right back to the gates of Auschwitz and the obscene profits which Europe's royalty and heads of state made from their investments in slave labour. This is a brutal truth which the West must now confront, and an equally brutal problem the United States must now face is the question of what has happened to the US military in the intervening years since it murdered its own commander-in-chief. The answer is that America's armed forces are now completely controlled by the American Mafia. The mob don't even need hitmen anymore. They use United States Marines as assassins. They are, as Sam Giancana said, one organization who keep a low profile while they control the world as a business. The military, everyone, man. Everything's a lie. Everything's a rich man's trick. Literally everything. We're being played. They work with the criminals. They're worse than the criminals. They are criminals. They're traitors. They work against this country. Kennedy wanted to dismantle the CIA, break it into a thousand pieces. He wanted to pull us out of Vietnam. He wanted to do a lot of things. A lot of people think he wanted to dismantle the Fed. Maybe get us on a gold standard. I don't know how big his ideals went, but I know he crossed them. And they assassinated him. And covered it up. And this movie is some of the best research into that assassination I've ever seen. You know. And they do, Sean. They play us like a fiddle. And they still do. They still do to this day. You know. There's nothing new under the sun. So Rat Bastard says that all lifetime politicians have skeletons in the closet and they must go to prison. I can't say you're wrong about that, sir. You're very wise. And Miss Caitlin says it's horrifying that still no justice all these years later. She wants RFK to win 
So he'll disclassify all of it, declassify all of it. Ah, Y'all got high hopes for these politicians. I understand you don't really consider RFK Jr. a politician. That's funny, though, because he comes from American royalty. He couldn't be more politically correct, collect, connected. I can't talk today. And more in the club, part of a bloodline family. Man, I can't either. I can't either. And I don't want you to be right about that. I really don't. You know, I can't get over Jackie taking the final hit either. Okay, so it's decision time. I don't know when he's going to transition into 9-11. But it's happening soon, I know that. And that was a stopping point. We're at um, hour 24 in the show tonight. Usually our clock time for Wednesdays is about 90 minutes. And then that would leave me and Paul about 40 minutes to get into next week. If he's with me next week, I don't know how long he has got to do this special favors for Chad Kroger that he's doing. I don't know how long that's going to go on. I'm, I'm sorry, backache. I'm just kidding. He had everyone paid off. They use their money for control and power. They really don't care about money. It, it has no value to them other than what it can buy them and, and, and get them. Control and power-wise. Buy people with it. Right, Kalen? Because he's going to transition. And I know exactly how it's going to happen. It's been a while since I've seen this movie, but I know he's going to go right into 9-11 and then you'll be like, fuck, I'm going to be able to pause it for 45 minutes. So that's what we'll be covering next week if you come back on part four of uh, An Introduction to Evil. The breakdown of JFK to 9-11, Everything's a Rich Man's Trick, which the link is in the description to this whole video on my Rumble channel. So not only can you see the video, share it out, all of that, bookmark it and keep it for future reference, you can go give it a like on my channel all at the same time. So you're you're supporting the channel and you're getting the video for yourself. And if you want, you can go over there and watch the last 45 minutes. You are at two hours and 48 minutes right now. So you can go over to Rumble and check that out. But Paul's running low on glitter. So you're not going to be able to stay and make crafts with Chad Kroger and the rest of the Nickelback guys, are you? Not for much longer. You'll be back. I don't want you to miss 9-11, Paul. Every time we try to do 9-11, Paul's not here. He had to miss it the last time I scheduled it. We were going to break down one of my 9-11 videos. And I don't remember, it was something else having to do with Nickelback. 
but he couldn't be here for that one either. Let's see, though. I do want to thank you guys for coming and hanging out. I'm sorry that I'm a little awkward tonight. I'm used to Paul being here. I've gotten used to that, bouncing off my buddy for Conspiracy Theory Night. Because, uh, you know, it helps. It helps having that other voice, you know, around and, and somebody else to watch it with. But... Is there anything you guys want to get into? Uh, everything we covered tonight? The rest of the Kennedy assassination? Um, the, he went into extreme detail on that. The Bush family's involvement. The CIA. The media. The CIA controlling the media. Any of that stuff you want to touch back on or touch base on or anything like that? Oh, thank you, Paul. I tried. Did my best. But I want to remind you guys to come back Friday night and check out Yankee Rants. We rant on Friday nights. It's pretty awesome. And we get all our frustration out. Let's clear our mind for the weekend. So check all that stuff out. And then on Saturday, there'll be an hour of the time. You guys have a great rest of your evening. And God bless. Thank you.